I was really taken with your content because, well, you and I share something in common, right? And that is using a chemical to try to numb a lot of pain. And a post of yours in particular really struck me. And that post was the, the picture of you younger using and then you now. And you say in the post, these two photographs represent two versions of the same person. I love both for different reasons. The first is a scared little boy imprisoned in a man's body. The echoes of his past tortured him. He wants to run away and withdraw into his mind palace, a palace he built to feel safe amongst violence, chaos, and fear. Alcohol helped him do that. The second is a father, a husband, a brother, a friend, an entrepreneur, and someone dedicated to helping others. And being of service, a man who smiles and laughs and seeks joy and peace. Sobriety helped him do that. Well, this is really profound, and I will probably use that in my intro, so people will probably have to hear that twice. But that drove me to message you and want to connect, because that's a really powerful statement. And on this show, Unfiltered, we talk about sobriety, business, you mentioned everything, all the, you, you triggered it all, the, uh, the keywords, um, entrepreneur, success, sobriety, pain, suffering, all that stuff. So... That's what I want to dive into. Unfiltered with Matt Farnsworth. I'm happy to do so. Um, as I said, I'm really, I really appreciate all of them things you just said. I mean, it's always very rewarding when somebody, uh, you know, I've never heard anyone actually read back one of my posts like that before. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's a powerhouse. Mm, yeah, I can hear it. I certainly can. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't have my glasses on. I could do it better than that if you want. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing, the thing is, is that like one of the things I believe strongly in is that if you really want to move forward in life and you want to heal from some of the really unfortunate things that happen to us all in our lives, compassion is the way forward. We have to be compassionate with ourselves first. And, in by doing that, we teach other people how to treat us. If we go around telling ourselves that we're worthless and we're horrible because we've done this thing or that thing or this thing's happened to us and we start identifying with it and becoming those feelings in that person, then we teach other people that too. You know, we teach other people that we're worthless. We teach other people that we're not good enough. We teach other people that we're not to, you know, we're not someone for them maybe, I don't know. But mm -hmm. my journey was all about undoing what had been done to me as a child undoing what I had learned I look at my father more like an instructor and I look at him having taught me a bunch of lessons you know every morning when I wake up even now um you know that moment when you turn your computer on and it starts load and there's like a black screen and then there's all these programs that start loading up onto your computer and there's a moment like I said where there's a black screen and that's my moment of peace when I wake up and then straight away, all the programs start downloading. And the programs are, you are worthless. You're not good enough. You're making a fool of yourself, blah, 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 all of these things. And I used to battle those things every morning, but it gets very, very tiring doing that. <laughs> and you don't always believe it. You know, it's one of the problems I have with sort of um, 
not mantras what's it called um when people look in the mirror and they and they and they say things to themselves uh, um mm-hmm. yeah um, affirmations affirmations that's right sorry um is that affirmations are wonderful if you believe them otherwise you're just lying to yourself in the mirror you know gaslighting you know, yourself yeah yeah and i'm not taking away affirmations affirmations have their place but every morning i'd wake up and tell myself those things weren't true but i didn't believe it i didn't believe it i thought it was nonsense i was like yeah you are all those things you just got us to do this this is the way forward right but what i realized is that like those f- thoughts and feelings are like a little river that's going downstream right if i put my foot in front of the river I feel like I've stopped it, but I haven't because the water will find another way around. It will go over, it will go under, it will, it will find a way around, it will go downhill, right? So what I have to do is I just have to let it do its thing. Just let it flow on by, you know? <laughs> I just have to let it go and then just get up and carry on, you know? And I have that every morning still now, and I just let it flow, just let it flow. And I don't try to stop it. I just let it, let it do its thing. It doesn't have to be true. Thoughts wow. are not facts. <laughs> thoughts are not facts they're not you know? they're not now no no and and you know we have to be really careful you know a lot of we grow up and we collect a lot of limiting beliefs and every self-development book i ever read has a section on limiting beliefs but i've learned that what you focus on grows stronger so if you focus on limiting beliefs and your limiting beliefs will become a real thing you know and you'll notice them everywhere and you'll obsess over them and they'll become a real thing for you so why why do that what, you know what what do we get from that why don't we focus on growth beliefs instead a limiting belief is something that limits you a growth belief is something that propels you forward the thing about growth beliefs is the answer to what are my growth beliefs is in the limiting beliefs it's generally the complete opposite <laughs> you know <laughs> you know when somebody says to me i am worthless my first question is what are you you know what what makes you think that you know why not well I stay away from why mm-hmm. and, I tell you, and I'll tell you why <laughs> okay. uh, the, re- the reason I stay away from why is because why can feel very accusive a- accusive if that was, that's a word mm-hmm. you know it feels finger pointing why 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 you know accusatory like hey. accusatory yeah that's a good a good good word <laughs> should have said that um yeah it can feel like that whereas um I like to ask what see why leads to blame Blame of yourself or blame of other people, Mm. you know, because most people do not know why. And getting asked a question you don't know the answer to is frustrating. You know, so you'll end up blaming because blaming is a nice, easy route. It's a secondary emotion. Yeah. So we'll just use blame. We'll go blame, blame, blame. If we ask what, it's a more exploratory question. It's a question that comes with curiosity. It it stops you from going introspective. It, It makes you look outwards. Yeah, what is it that makes me do that? What is it? What, what, what? It's not in me, it's out me. You know, it's out there somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. So I need to look for it, find it, you know, and change it if I can. That makes sense. What? It makes you Mm. think, hey, what happened to me? Yeah. Why am I like this? Why do I think these things about myself? What is this talk tape that I'm running in my brain on repeat that just sounds terrible that I wouldn't say to my worst enemy? Yeah. Very yeah. strange the way we do that, but it is based on that childhood experience, isn't it? It does get downloaded, as you said, into our consciousness. And then we, I begin to replay this talk tape and identify ourselves as that person. So 
you know, you wake up every day and you let all, it was a great explanation, by the way, all of the, the water flowing because water's powerful. Water will mm. make its way through no matter what. It can find a way around, right? Just the tiniest crack and it can find its, its way in. What do you have to, what is that water for you? What is that water that's flowing in the morning? That water is the person that, you're born and you have your parents yeah well most people do they're caregivers the people that are there to look after them and they let you down but mine let me down you know i i had needs as a kid <laughs> you know very very early on my needs were basic right i needed to be fed i needed to sleep and all them different things nappy change whatever but as i got older there were other needs there were other needs that i needed and what i learned about parents and caregivers is that like i say there are they are our instructors they teach us what we need they teach us how we react so a reaction is exactly that it's a reaction it's a repeat action and if we have needs that aren't met in our relationship with our parents if we have things that we see in them that we like things that we see in them that we don't like they become what we look for in relationships because they're familiar and what's familiar gives us comfort, but it's not always good for us. So then you have these needs that aren't met and you have these reactions and they will play out in every relationship that you can find, you know? And the mm. thing is, is that if we grew up in an abusive relationship, so uh, my father was violent, very, very violent. Um, I had to witness a lot of domestic violence as a kid. I had a lot of violence done to me. And there were aspects of torture that were done to me as a child as well. Had my head, had my head held underwater. I got locked inside of things um, and so on and so on. So many things happened to me and I never really recognized or gave it its credence um, until I went into therapy and the therapist started crying and saying, do you, do you understand the things that have happened to you? And I think the bit that upset her was that I was talking about these things as if I had just watched it in a film. I was completely detached from it. So when I started having these conversations and she started to make me realize what had happened to me, I was like, wait, yeah, all this time I've been looking back as if it was just this little boy, but that little boy's me, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, it was a real, like, real difficult moment for me. But they Definitely. teach, mm -hmm. yeah, it was. And it was like realizing that, you know, that isn't normal and that, you know, this sort of thing has had an impact to me. And, you know, a thousand thoughts flooded in all at once. You asked me what the water is. Well, the, the water is every relationship I'd ever had that never worked out. You know, I would get with girls, you know, and then I would immediately start looking for what's wrong with them. <laughs> mm -hmm. How, how they're going to let me down, how they're going to betray me, how they're going to do this, how they could do that. I promise you, if you keep looking and treating someone like that, they will do it. <laughs> yeah. They don't have much choice. I, I <laughs> you know that actually, that, you guide that <clears throat> that exit you actually usher mm. that exit in of that person because you're too afraid to go deeper in the relationship yeah because what we're looking for is what we're used to right it's what we're used to so if we're used to abuse and being treated a certain way whether we like it or not which obviously we don't um we become comfortable with that behavior and then if we get the opposite, if we get someone that's kind to us, someone that's nice to us, someone that treats us in a nice, respectful way, red flags go off in us. It's like, what? 
Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, what do you want? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? You must want something, you know, blah, 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 you know, uh, and we push them away because we're treating them like they're doing something wrong when they're not. <laughs> and actually they, they get more from us when they treat us like an asshole. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. make sense. It doesn't make any sense that, you know, we reward the bad behavior that we don't want. <laughs> So confusing. I've done that yeah. in my life, man. I, I am, yeah. I am with you on that, dude. When I was younger, until this last relationship and my my eight years sober, the first thirteen of my first marriage, mm. it, it was based on toxicity. It was based on insanity. It didn't make sense, and and that is because of my childhood. And you are right because I had a a situation where there wasn't a lot of care given either. I wasn't abused. I wasn't tortured. I mean, I got corporal punishment, whipped, those kinds of things. Not not nearly what you've gone through. And I had a very, my mother was abused when she was young, terribly. Um, sexual abuse, her own, her own father. And I, she, she didn't have that ability to comfort or be that warm person once I hit a certain age where she was no longer, you know, omnipresent. And I became aware of myself wherever her innocence was taken was where her ability to emotionally connect ended. And I suffered a little bit because of that. My father was pretty emotional. He's always been a great guy and they're nice people. They're wonderful people. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, bashing on what they did here with me. I'm very lucky to be where I'm at, but did have an impact on me and my relationships did suffer. And I did get into re- to a relationship with someone who was able to gaslight me a bit by <laughs> pretending to be wonderful and pretending to love me and give me all of this affection that I never had. And I was, I, I let a lot of people in that way, you know, that, that probably shouldn't have ever been there in the first place. I know we do things to, to push people away. There's also that aspect where we let people in when we're not, confident and well emotionally that we shouldn't is that possible yeah i think so i i think that we we nothing is harder to accept than the things that we don't want to be true so we will become so creative at creating a narrative that we can accept so we want people to be a certain way so we sell them that we say to them hey if you treat me this way and you treat me that way i'll do this i'll do that so we almost give them all the information they need to be the person that they, that we want them to be and then we buy it <laughs> we buy it back off of them because that's what we want it to be but it isn't mm-hmm. it isn't you know and this is it you know this is this is brilliant narcissists are brilliant at this mm. they they see it and they don't even quite a lot of the time they don't know they're doing it no. They're just really skilled at smelling that, whatever you want to call it, weakness. I don't love that term, but you know, that, that, that need, I suppose, is a better way of putting it. It's almost like an insecurity. Yeah. You have an insecurity or a need to, you know, that wasn't met as a kid and it, it projects out of you, whether you know it or not. And not everyone can see it, but these narcissists can. They can see it and they go, oh, this guy needs this. So I'm going to go mm-hmm. over here and do this and do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to extract what I need from them, you know? Um, it's a game, I suppose, but this is why, this is why we have to go back and heal that child. I, I, I'm, I was fascinated by what you said about your mother being trapped at a certain point in her growth. Mm -hmm. And I think that that happens to everybody, everybody at different stages. And I think that the trick is to go back to that person as, as crazy and as wild as it sounds is to go back to that person 
and try to understand what happened and what what left them feeling this way and what they needed that they didn't get and then learn to give it to yourself you know and that's what i've i've had to reparent myself i've had to talk to myself i still do i have to i have moments all the time you know my my career is taking off you know i'm getting attention and people are wanting me to go and talk at events and that makes me feel like a massive imposter it really does i go into rooms and i've got your worthless you're making a fool of yourself playing in my head you know whether i want it to or not but then what i do is i mindfully collect the evidence all the time that i can do these things i i went and climbed mount Tupcal um a little while back in morocco um, I was very saddened. Um, we stayed in a village at the bottom of Mount Tupcal. So obviously when the earthquakes happened this past weekend, that was that was difficult because I was lucky enough to meet some of those village people and um, and spend time with their families and their kids. And it really brought it home for me, you know. Uh, I really felt it. I really did. I was feeling quite emotional over the weekend. But what happened in Mount Tupcal was I met myself for the first time, I've done an extensive amount of work. I've always been working on myself all the time, always trying to bring myself to a higher level, to a better level emotionally and um, cognitively, you know, always trying to learn. And the realest lesson I ever got happened on that mountain. You know, it's three, it's 2 a.m. in the morning. I get up um, middle of the night to climb this mountain. We're going from 3,200 meters to 4,167. And as I start going up that hill, I start feeling awful and, um, you know, needing to go to the toilet all the time. I felt so bad that I couldn't tell the difference between a headache and a stomachache. That's how awful I felt. My whole body felt like a heartbeat. It felt like I was being attacked. It was awful. And I got to a point where I was walking with this one chap and he said to me, Johnny, you got to make a decision, buddy, up or down. And I, that moment felt like an hour, but it wasn't. It was just a minute. But what happened was I realized something that when you do hard things, it forces your body and your mind to work together. It's like two squabbling children that have a common goal all of a sudden, and they have to put all of their things aside and work together. And it's only when your mind and your body work together do you realize how much they don't, you know, how much they don't work together from day to day. And what happened was, if you want to implement change in your life, if you want to do hard things, you have to accept some stuff. Yeah. The first thing is you have to accept that it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. When I made that decision, I stopped thinking I was going to have this lovely little walk up to the top of the Mount Tupcal and I was going to see the sunrise. And I started realizing that every step is going to be hard and it's going to suck, but I've committed to it now. And that's the second part of it. We need to make a decision. When we decide that we're going to change, we quite often don't do it with real belief we don't believe that we can we just say it <laughs> we say it but we have to make that decision this is what I'm doing I'm going to the top of this mountain and it's going to suck but that's not going to change my mind <laughs> I'm going to get and and that's the way I have to look at my life now is that I have to stop with the expectations I have to stop thinking that I'm going to go in and this is going to happen I just have to go with it and I do my absolute best to bring myself course correct all the time bring myself back to the moment you know, even the podcast, it'd be easy for you, I'm sure, uh, while we're recording this podcast, to be thinking about editing it or thinking about what you've got to do afterwards or thinking about what you're having for lunch. But we try and stay focused, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in it with you, you know, and I think mm. that's that's the focus part and that's the hard part. It is. But I think what you're saying is, is, so, you, is so true to how we really learn to heal. And that is taking on responsibility 
Mm. And when you take on that responsibility, you learn about yourself. And until you take on some responsibility and do hard things, you don't really know yourself because you don't really know what you're able to accomplish. And I created hard things for myself. I'm going to be honest. I created really difficult situations for myself. Like, for example, picking up alcohol again after 13 years of not drinking. It was a blessing and a curse, uh, but a blessing in disguise because what happened is, is I figured out that I had a lot of problems. And prior to that 13 years, I didn't even look at it. I just was totally unconscious. I swear to you, I was unconscious for 13 years, white knuckling sobriety Mm. and it all exploded. And I ended up flipping a car six times. I ended up breaking my neck and having to, you know, just walk, you know, 20 miles a day and go to recovery and wonder whether or not I was going to end up in prison. And it was a difficult time. But through that difficult time, I learned who I was. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I got in touch with that dark side of myself because I was forced to take a look at it. And I, 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 I feel you and I resonate with everything that you said. And I wonder now, looking back, you're on the top of that mountain. You're sober at this point. Is that right? Yeah, this was only earlier this year. I um, I uh, it stripped me away. It stripped all of the banter and joking that I do with people. All the deflections, all of the false narratives, all of the lies I've told myself. It stripped it all away, and what was left was there for me to accept or not. And that was something about that. It's like you you try your best to 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 protect your ego tries its best to protect you, right? By telling you this and telling you that and you buy it because you want to. But then when you get to a mountain like that, it doesn't care if you get to the top. Doesn't care if you enjoy it, doesn't care if you're cold, doesn't care if you're tired, doesn't care if you've got altitude sickness, doesn't care. Doesn't care. It's not gonna change for you. You have to change for it. And that's the metaphor I use for life now. You know, I have to adapt. I have to adapt. I can blame people. I can tell people I don't deserve stuff. I can do that all day long. It's not going to help. So at some point I have to get to a point where I put all of that aside. And I have this thing I call uh, the, the, four, the four stages of behavioral change. And the first is awareness. I do not believe that you can change anything unless you are aware of it first. What is it? What is the problem? Absolute clarity on it. Be completely sure. What is it that I'm trying to change here? The next thing is accountability, which feels a little bit like you're taking the blame for something, but it's not. It's saying, where here can I take accountability for some stuff? It doesn't have to be my fault. doesn't have to be, I, don't, I might not deserve it. All those things are true. It's not being dishonored. It's just that I'm going to take my power back and I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to stop relying on that person or that organization or that thing. I'm going to take control of it myself and I'm going to do it for myself, literally. Um, And then the next stage is acceptance. Where here do I not have any power? Where here am I constantly sitting there hoping, wishing that this thing would be different when it isn't? What do I need to accept? Where do I have no longer have any influence? And then the last stage is action. What do I need to do? What do I need to do now? Now that I've now that I'm aware of something, now that I've taken accountability for this, and now where I've accept this, what do I need to do next for myself to move forward? You know, and that to me, no matter whether you're looking at a big problem in life or a small one, that works for me and it works for my clients. (laughs) 
the four stages. So yeah, they all begin with A as well. That's helpful, isn't it? <laughs> it, it does help. It's almost like actions, yeah. beliefs, and consequences. Like we have, we yeah. take actions based on right our beliefs that we have, and and all of those actions. Well, they have these consequences in our life, right? And up on top of that mountain, I love, I love what you said there, and and what that to me, what that was for me. <clears throat> excuse me, was the ability to say, I'm not in control anymore. Mm. And that was really, really hard for me because I, I think I tried to control almost every aspect yeah. of my life. And that was tough because you know, I'm, not, I'm not in control of the ship. And in recovery, and I don't know if you went to recovery or how that worked, or if you did therapy, <clears throat> and I want to get into that and understand that because I know you were deep into alcoholism and addiction. And uh, you're obviously way on the other side of it. And it's so impressive to hear you speak. And, but not being in control of the ship, you know, that saying in AA, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm. That wisdom to know the difference was really, really a difficult and sticky point for me. Um, and that kind of sounds like what you're talking about here on top of that mountain saying, well, what am I supposed to do? I, this, I can't control this mountain. I can't shape it to make it work for me anymore. I've got to have what's called acceptance mm. of the situation that I'm in. How did that play in for you in recovery? How did that work? What, tell me your story of what alcohol did for you when you first started using it. How quickly did you become addicted to it? How much were you drinking? And how did you start to turn that around? What was your moment of clarity where you said, I've got to stop this. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to die. I've ruined relationships. How did it go for you? What was that like? Well, I want to pick up firstly on the thing you said about control, because ultimately this is about the realization that we are never in control. Control is an illusion that we sell ourselves to impede our anxiety. We, we don't want to feel like anything could happen at any time. A definition I've heard of anxiety is um, the awareness of infinite possibilities. <laughs> this sounds horrendous. <laughs> Give me three. <laughs> One of them I don't like and the other two I've got a pick between. Great, good, I'm, I'm happy, you know, but that's not how life is. But mm -hmm. my alcohol journey started when I was probably really like I dr drunk before this point but I, I I never had what I would call a problem it wasn't on my radar or anything like that but I had to leave the family home when I was about 17 years old and the reason for that was because I came in from work one day and I walked into the living room on a scene where my mum was holding my younger brother in her arms while my dad was violently raining down on him with a slipper and he was hitting both of them. And I just walked in the door, 17 years old, a little bit bigger, hadn't seen violence in the house for, for a little while at that point. Not, not like that. And I just lost it. And I went over and I grabbed him and I pulled him away and I threw him across the room. At this point, I was um, just starting to wrestle. I was a professional wrestler for a little while in my life. And I was just starting to wrestle. And uh, I picked up a bit of weight, a bit of strength, knew what I was doing. I was still terrified of my father though. But in this moment, all of that went out the window. It wasn't a heroic moment by any stretch of the imagination. I was utterly terrified, but I just did something instinctively and I pulled him off. And then I stood there and thought, oh, what now? <laughs> and he looked at me and he walked right up to my face and he just laughed and he walked away and he went upstairs. And in that moment, I realized that something had started between me and him and I didn't like the way it could end. 
So my mum and I spoke together and we said it's probably better that you move out. So I moved out. We decided that together. I've spoken about that before and people have said, oh, you know, maybe he should have moved out. But I think that just shows a lack of awareness around uh, domestic violence and how complicated it can be psychologically and um, financially and all those different things. He's not moving out. That guy, he's not going to move out. That's no. his house. I mean, no, he's, exactly. he's dominating no, it, that environment. There you go. Exactly that. So I move out and I have a very strange feeling I've never had before. Loneliness. You know, every night I'm sat there and this is where the first interesting thing about the way we are and how trauma works is even though it was a horrible environment, I missed it. I missed the chaos. I missed the violence. I missed all of the, the, the brothers and sisters running about the place, all that sort of stuff. I missed it all. So this, right? is, this is trauma bonding. Yeah, yeah. And there I was in a little flat on my own and I went down the shop one night and there was some beers. I was like, why not? You know, I never drunk at home in my life, you know, couldn't dare bring beer into my house or alcohol into my house. My mum and dad didn't drink, but here I was. Well, why not? All of a sudden I've got this, why not? So I buy the beer and come home. Not, I'm not lonely anymore. I've got this companion now, I've got this friend who's always there for me, makes me feel good. Got a nice warm hug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when it started for me, you know, you know, I'd do it like at the weekends and then, you know, I'd start looking for excuses to do it in a week and then I'd have mates over and we'd do it all together and all that sort of stuff. And all this time I'm just reinforcing and building this relationship with alcohol, you know, and um, it was never really a problem then, not not one I recognized. It was the early stages of something that I didn't know would become a massive problem in the future. But for me, my relationship with alcohol accelerated. If we fast forward and um, in my 30s and my wife and I having our first child, and um, I'm really excited about this. You know, I'm telling myself I've been through therapy. I'm all fixed. <laughs> it's just a red flag for anybody. If you find yourself were you, saying... Were you, still, were you still drinking? I was still drinking, but even at that point, I didn't think it was a problem. You know, I thought I drank a little bit too much, but I was doing that thing that everyone does is they compare with their friends and their friends are drinking as much as you are. You know, you go to the doctor, who's probably drinking more than you are too. You tell them that you think you've got a problem and you tell them you drink this much alcohol a week or whatever and they go oh, yeah, i do that <laughs> well, then we put, the answer is we both got problems <laughs> that's the answer and, but, but and no so doctors... many people do yeah you, yeah well you're, you're ingesting this neurotoxin right and you don't you don't think that it is but it is yeah it is you know and and this is the thing you know I, everything around me was telling me i was okay and that i didn't have a problem so mm. i didn't have a problem right but it wasn't until my son was born and i was really excited about it all and uh, I promised myself I was all fixed and I was going to be the best dad in the world and all these different things. And my son was born and held him for the first time. I, you know, I cut the umbilical cord and I'm holding my son. He's literally just been born. And I'm looking down and I have this overwhelming feeling of love. My God, I, you know, every parent feels like this. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. But at the same time, I have this conflicting feeling. It hits me just as hard. Now, I want to make it clear in case my son ever hears me speak about this. I, I say it often. Um, nothing takes away that moment. That moment was powerful and meaningful to me. But at the same time, unfortunately, I was met with another competing feeling. And it was like, I always ask myself in my life, why did my dad do the things that he did? Why, why, why? You know, and I've always spoken about how unhelpful why is. Um, but then all of a sudden, the question changed from why to how. 
as a man, when you're holding your son, daughter, child, whatever, you have this overwhelming feeling of love. Then how can you do those things to that that child? How can you do those things if you feel that feeling? Because you must, because you're a parent. Every parent must feel something, you know, and that shut me down. I was wrestling with that from the moment that got into me. I couldn't not know, you know, and it it's to me, alcohol was the only thing I could do that stopped that from happening. When I drank alcohol, I stopped thinking and caring about any of that. You know, I started to become in the moment, you know, and that's when crazy Johnny would do crazy stuff when he was drunk to make people laugh and have fun. And before you know, I'm the one being invited out and I've created this, this, this like vicious circle really of like, you know, not wanting to do the thing, but if I do the thing, I get the thing back, you know? So, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a nightmare, but I realized it was a problem when uh, just before the pandemic, I started to get scared because I was like, you know, at the time I was um, helping people with exercise and fitness. And I was also doing like coaching as well alongside that. And I thought to myself, oh, the only thing that keeps me in check is work. What happens when I can't do it? And I got scared and I thought to myself, what am I going to do when every day is the same? and I start to get bored or restless, I'm going to drink alcohol. And I thought, if I don't do something about this, I'm not going to be able to make make it through. I won't get through the pandemic because I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll start off with a few beers when the sun's out, and then it'll end up a few beers and some wine. And before I know it, I'm in a real, in a real bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, don't have to get up in the morning so I can sit and have a hangover all day long. Fine, great. You know, That's not the reality of it. That's how I saw it back then. So I decided that I needed to stop drinking alcohol and I went to see somebody Um, and I was in a really bad spot. I drunk quite a bit one week and I was just really right in the depths of really bad mental health. Um, I wasn't suicidal or anything, but I wouldn't like to guess whether it would have got there, you know, Um, because I was really feeling in a dark place. And I went along and I spoke to this person who was someone different to the original person and he helped me um, understand who I am and my relationship with myself at the time. And then we got round to alcohol and um, I said to him, it was, uh, Nov- it was November. And I said to him, um, I'll give up after Christmas. <laughs> and he sort of, mm. he laughed and he said, you know, there'll always be a Christmas. There'll always be a birthday. There'll always be a wedding or a holiday. There'll always be a reason to not stop drinking. But how cool will it be is if you have this Christmas alcohol free, and then next Christmas, you've got one Christmas under your belt. And I so didn't want him to be right. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, maybe. Anyway, I got out of there. And um, I said to him before I left, I said, why do I drink? And he said, if you want to know why you drink, stop drinking. And he was right. Because two weeks into my sobriety, first week was, was easy. Why didn't I do this ages ago? Second yeah. week, it's a little bit harder, you know, but yeah, I've got this, no problem. And then week three, I had this really uncomfortable emotion. Mm, and I am raw. Immediate... You're, you're raw, man. Mm. I, wanted, I wanted to drink really badly. Yeah. And that's when I realized that the reason I drink is because I am unwilling or unable to experience difficult emotions. I outsourced my emotional regulation to alcohol. I also did the complete opposite. Sometimes I would drink to connect. Sometimes I would drink to disconnect. Both can be true at the same time. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I've been in that position, obviously. 
interesting to think that <clears throat> being a man is not all about just the physical prowess that you possess. It's about being able to express those emotions that are deep inside and connect with the ones that you love. And that was the thing I have always been most afraid of. Very uncomfortable for me prior to recovery and looking at myself under a microscope in a granular way. And until I did that, I was uncomfortable and I didn't want to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I understand exactly what you're saying, but how much more masculine and manly and alpha is it to be able to say, here's how I'm feeling. Hmm. I don't lie to myself anymore. Yeah, man. I, I don't gaslight myself. Do you gaslight yourself still? <laughs> no, I really don't. Great. Occasionally, but I, if I do, I catch myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you can catch do, myself. man. It's all you can do. And this is it. It's like, it's like deepening the relationship with yourself. It's like, I can't tell you how important it is. I help people change. I help people implement change into their life and it is not possible it is not possible without you being honest you have to be honest with yourself absolutely if you can't be honest with you how can you how can you be honest with anyone else how can you connect with another human being until you feel that serenity inside and how can you expectation you said it before Mm. expectation is a dangerous thing because <laughs> our serenity, our serenity is inversely proportional to our expectation. I'm breaking out the AA euphemisms here and sayings, but this is true. The more we expect, the easier it is for us to be let down. And then our neural pathways are going to lead us directly back to the alcohol, especially if we haven't dealt with the ability to handle those letdowns and deal with setting proper expectations or, or understand how to set those expectations properly. And until I got rid of those expectations and said, I really don't expect anything. I expect things of myself, but I'm not going to expect a lot of others. And once I started to do that, I became a lot happier. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, those expectations are all tied in with anxiety, right? The problem is in this world is that we think anxiety is a bad thing. But anxiety is always there because anxiety is simply that we don't know what's going to happen. It's just that we choose to fear it instead of getting excited about it. So I don't know what's going to happen right now. All of my power could go off right now. All of yeah. it could happen, right? Is it likely to happen? I don't know. But I could sit and worry about that all day long if I wanted to. It's a choice, right? Now, that's, that's annoying saying it that way because people might think I'm saying like, you know, it's a choice that, to be anxiety, anxious. What I'm saying is it's about reframing things. It's about realizing that if you want to call things anxious, if you want to talk about anxiety and you want to talk about it as if anxiety is a bad thing, then it will be. It will be a bad thing. Anxiety will be this thing that you fear, this thing that will drive you nuts. And how can we, how can we solve anxiety? Well, anxiety is the fear of not knowing. So I'm going to convince myself that I know. <laughs> you know I'm going to convince myself that I know what's going to happen by creating expectations. And then buying into those expectations as if they're real, if they're, as if they're reality, as if they're definitely going to happen, mm -hmm. you know? And then when they don't, it sends us back to where we were originally, which is, oh my gosh, this thing's not happened. I'm so disappointed. No, you've just been realizing that <laughs> you're back where you were before, which is anxious. So the, the work has to be, the work has to be, I need to change my relationship with anxiety. I don't know what's going to happen. How exciting.
how exciting that I don't know what's going to happen next, you know, because we never do, you know, I could go to the shop, get hit by a car, right? I know, massive example, awful one at that, um, but it's true. Anything could happen, you know? Possible. It's possible. Yeah. You could, that could happen to you. That could, I mean, this could be my last day on earth. And what have I said? What have could I done? Be. And now this takes us yeah. into a spiritual realm here, doesn't it? Um, mm. In a way, like, you know, the, there's lots of different beliefs out there, but what gets you through it? What, if it does end, what then? Do you have any viewpoints on that? Uh, I'm not sure I understand. What, what well, do you mean? <clears throat> what is your spiritual viewpoint? Is say, say, what gives you serenity? Do you have anything that you go to uh, besides reframing, which I understand and I think is a great technique, but mm. do you have any, was there any spirituality that you brought into this equation to help you get through any of this? At any point, if I want to, I can sit and I can think about things that I will feel all the emotions all over again that I felt when it originally happened. I will feel the hurt. I will have the longingness for it to be different. I will replay it over and over again in my head, hoping and praying that this time when I do it, I can figure out where it went wrong and I can solve it and I can change it. And I can have all of these conflicting emotions and really difficult to experience emotions i can do that anytime the bad things will always be true so why focus on them well it's a habit it's a practice habit we've practiced it so many times we've become good at it and actually now it even offers us a little bit of comfort makes mm -hmm. us feel like we're really changing things but if you want to talk about spirituality what i've come to realize is that i need to actively and mindfully focus on what helps and heals not what hurts and holds me back. Because what I'm realizing more and more is that those things will always be true. And it's not them that's hurting me anymore. It's my practice of reliving them that's hurting me. And I will get caught up in that sometimes. You know, rumination, right? I'll be driving and a song comes on, it triggers a thought, and before I know it, I'm deep into a thought. And I've actually, I've started doing this very strange thing. I've started shouting, stop! You're ruminating again. And it's so ridiculous that it actually works. Oh, no. <laughs> actually stops me from doing from, from ruminating because I start laughing at how stupid mm -hmm. it all is. You know, but my my spiritual practice is focusing on what helps and heals, not what hurts and holds me back. Because those things are always available for us. They're always available. It's always I'm always available to think about the people that have hurt me and how they did it mm -hmm. and why they did it. And I start, I don't know them answers, right? I don't know why they did it. So what do I do? I make up the answer, right? Because it makes me anxious. I make up the answer, then I formulate an, another truth from what that answer is. And then I formulate another truth from what that answer is. And before I know it, I'm all the way over here and I'm really anxious and I'm really stressed about something that I kind of made up. <laughs> I took the original incident and I applied all this meaning to it that I don't actually know is fact. Yeah, and now I'm really stressed and upset about it. You yeah, know? Prior to my accident and, and when I was really in the thick of anxiety, obsession, OCD, mm. couldn't stop myself from compulsively reliving what had happened to me. <clears throat> I had a, a psychiatrist I went to to talk to and, and he said, look, just buy a hair tie or a rubber band and put it around your wrist. You've heard this, right? And every Yeah, but you, carry on. And, but, and every time you start to think of this, just snap yourself. Mm. And remind, so it's kind of like your stop, you know, stop doing this. And I would snap myself till I was red and, um, it, it did work. Like it did pull me out of that for a moment and 
help me to realize that I was obsessing. Um, but I was, I was in a powerful, powerful place where I really don't know that I would have gotten out of it without like kind of a deeper spiritual awakening for me. But again, I was in a really bad place and I'm grateful for that. And I do get what you're saying. I mean, I like the idea of reframing. I think that a lot of people think that they're trapped, mm. that they're trapped in this one place and they don't. I met with a, a personal coach not too long ago as well and had a podcast with her. And she said, a lot of people are trapped in the same cycle. Like they're doing the same thing every day, all day long, and they never change. And they wonder why they're unhappy. Do you find that to be true? That people are just kind of in this unconscious rat race that they're going through, living life the way they always have. And then it, they, they never change anything, but then they wonder why they're unhappy. I think we're hardwired to make everything a habit. I think if we can make everything a habit, then um, life feels easier. And the thing is, um, it's like I said to you with the four stages of behavioral change. Um, the first one's awareness. If you can't change a behavior unless you're aware of it. Um, and I feel like I have this, this idea that we, we exist in three states. And I think the first state is the person we want to become right? That's based off of our values. That's the person that when we look forward in the future, we'd really like to become that person. We'd like to embody these values, these core values, because core values, people think that's who they are, but it's not. It's who they want to be, you know? Um, the second state of self is the person that we think other people want us to be. So we, we, we give an, a, a behavior to somebody, they gratify that behavior. We then get the cue that that's how we, they want us to show up. And that's what we keep doing. You know, and we do that as, 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 um, as parents, we do that as business owners. We do that as employees, we do that as brothers, sisters, daughters, sons. We do it all, you know, dads, you know, whatever, you know, we do, we, we, we have this behavior gratified to us. Yep. I like you like that. Do that more. And so we do it. And that can get mistakenly looked at as people pleasing. And then there's the last version of ourselves, which is the self, the version of ourselves that I think we neglect because no one of these parts of us is more important than the other. They're all equal and it all should be nurtured equally if possible. <clears throat> and that last part of ourselves is the person we are right now. Because the person we are right now in this moment has needs that aren't getting met because we're too busy trying to be our purpose. We're trying to look forward and live up to our values and we're trying to be the person that everyone else wants us to be too so something's got to give right so it's going to be me so even though what i really would love to do more than anything in the world right is get a big bag of sweets and watch netflix for two hours i'm not going to do it because that doesn't align with the person i'm going to be and if this person sees me doing that they're going to be disappointed mm -hmm. but i want to and why do i need to justify it to anybody what's that about you know, I, I'm allowed to do that. I'm an adult. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But, but this is what I'm saying. We have these behaviors and we don't become aware of them, you know, and we neglect parts of ourselves. Most of the time when I see people that are unhappy in their life, it's because they are neglecting themselves in some way. They are neglecting, they, they sit there and they, they do this job that they've always done because they went and got a degree in this thing and they think, well, I didn't do a degree for this many years so I can work, not work in this field. Or they're with a partner that they've been with for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, so they said, oh, I have to stay with this partner because we've been together 25 years, blah, blah, blah. And all of that is all very lovely, but you get one shot at life. 
live it the way you want to live as long as it doesn't hurt anybody as long as no one's getting um anything taken from them live your life do the things that make you happy do the things that you want to do you know don't stay with that partner if you're not happy with them don't do that job if it sucks don't hang around with them people if they're idiots <laughs> don't do it stop it you know I and know. this is it we don't we don't give ourselves permission to to say to ourselves yeah yeah, I'm going to do that because it comes with really hard decisions. I'm not going to sit here and say that leaving a job that you've been in for 20 years isn't hard. Of course it is. It's terrifying. There's so much security and comfort attached to that job. But maybe you're a bit bored with security and comfort. Maybe you do need that risk in your life that I've got to succeed at this because if I don't, it's all going to fall around yeah. me. Um, you've never really I don't want to be with that partner. That. Yeah, you've never heard somebody no. say like, oh, I left that job and I'm so upset I want to go back to it. You don't hear that as much as you hear the story of yeah. I'm so glad I left. I can't believe I stayed that long. That's yeah. more of what you hear. Or you hear, Absolutely. I wish I had left that relationship in the first place or as I was walking down the aisle and I had reservations and I looked over that. to my father and I said, should I be doing this? And he said, of course you should because they paid for the wedding, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> And you continue on with it and then you live the next 10 years in this nightmare that you wish you had walked away from. When you actually leave it, you look back and say, I never should have walked down that aisle, no matter what people thought. And I think it goes back to us caring too much about what people think. Yep. Other people's viewpoint and seeking outside validation. Gosh, you and I could go so many places with this conversation. It's crazy. <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> I think we are. Yeah, we're, we're, like, we're like killing it here. It's um, It's incredible to... You know, just, and I think what I want to go to, and I don't know, we'll never, we'll never riddle this for today or anywhere in the near future, I assume, but how do they recognize it, man? That's the deal. Like, how do you end up recognizing these behaviors? How do you know? Okay. Yeah. I, I get your point. Hey, you make a valid case that people need to see it and be aware. Awareness is a great thing, but how the heck do we bring people to awareness? Oh, I love that question. I, and I tell you what, I'm not sure if you'll love the answer or not. That thing that scares the crap out of you, that thing that you don't want to be true, so you avoid it through alcohol or whatever else, or you just simply don't talk about it or avoid it because the whole thing makes you feel uncomfortable. That's where you find it. That's how you do it. There's a there's a story, there's a, a fable or something I read or heard somewhere where if a stingy nettle leaf stings you the antidote to the sting is within the leaf itself but you have to be brave enough to scrunch up the leaf and rub it on your skin you don't meet many people that do that because they're not about to grab the thing that stinged them scrunch it up in their hand and rub it all over the sting <laughs> but quite often if you look back at everything that went wrong in your life things that you didn't enjoy if you look back at it the solution to that painful moment was somewhere within that when people come to me with problems they don't realize it but they're also giving me the solution as they say it they know what they should do they know what they should do they are just terrified of doing it mm -hmm. i've they're done terrified. it I've that. yeah I, they're I was, scared you and i lived the the same the same parallel we're like parallel lives you and i in this in this multiverse of, of sorts so when I went through recovery, I ended up personal coaching. So I was doing training because I really enjoyed training. And as I was training these people, I noticed I'm not really helping you 
lose the weight. I'm retraining your brain to give you self-confidence, to make choices that make sense for you and are healthy for you. It's, and then it became a personal coach. I realized I'm not really, I mean, I, yeah, I can teach them how to lift weights. Here's how you lift weights. Here's how you, you know, jog, but your body already knows how to do that. The real issue you have is up here. Oh, I honestly, brother, you're, you're singing for the same thing sheet as me. I, I used to say to people all the time, I could go to a cafe with you, um, spend 15 minutes. I could write a workout down on a piece of paper and I could write down some dietary advice, guidance, whatever. And if you did it, it will work. But the, the problem isn't that you do it and it doesn't work. The problem is that you don't do it. What's stopping you from doing it? That's the problem. But people don't do that. So much with change is about people dealing with the symptoms instead of the root cause. You know, we can, we can, wh why is it I can train for 16 weeks and I can get into the shape of my life? But after that 16 weeks, I go back to exactly the same habits before. What is that about? It's because we haven't solved the problem. We haven't looked into the really scary bit. We've done the relatively easy bit, although it felt hard when we went to the gym and we sacrificed on our food and all that and we lost loads of weight. That bit is way, way easier then looking into the thing that scares the crap out of you. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a habit. So like you have a yeah. habit that got you into this really tough place where you're overweight. So they're almost developing a new habit of mm. not doing it anymore to attain a certain physical and mental well-being. But the problem is, is it never became a discipline. It's the need. It's the mm. need. What, you know, what did drinking give us? What need did it feel? What, what does food feel? What does sex feel? What does shopping feel? What does gambling feel? What does it give you? What does it give you that you need to, you know, like it goes back to that question that was asked me, if you want to know why you drink, stop drinking. It's not until you take away that outsourcing of alcohol or shopping or any form of addiction. It's not until you take that away, do you really see what you're dealing with? And you won't want it to be true. So you'll avoid it all day long. No one wants to realize that they're an addict. No one wants that. No one's sitting there thinking, gosh, I wish I was an addict. No, no one's thinking that, you know? So we don't want to be an addict. But then we realize that, hey, listen, you know where my, me and my friend will go out and we'll do something together and at the end he'll say to me, hey, do you want to fancy having a pint, Johnny? And then we'll go to the pub and we'll have a pint together. He'll go home and cut the grass. I'll go to the off-license and I'll buy more alcohol because that's the way I'm wired. As soon as I get on that train, I ain't getting off. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. So to me, I never get on that train again. And I've got that choice. I'm lucky with alcohol. It's not so easy with food because you can't say to yourself, you're never going to eat again. You know, it's a lot more difficult. And that's where you have to really work on the relationship. But again, hating things isn't helpful. It isn't helpful. You know, like I've had people that come to me that want to make change in their life. They want to lose weight. And I say to them, okay, what makes you want to do that? I hate myself. Okay, so when it gets really, really hard and you want to really dig into your drivers and your motivation and your why, that motivation, that driver, that why is I hate myself. Well, that's not going to help. <laughs> On them really tough days where you've had a really hard day at work and the kids are kicking off and you really want to eat the food, I hate myself is not going to motivate you. You know, I respect myself enough to not do this. That might work, you know, maybe. But this is it, isn't it? Like no one's got the answers to it. But what I know is that there are too many well-meaning coaches people out there in life that are trying to tell you that they've got a method of formula system that's going to help you but the fact is is that you can have steps and stages and all these different things but even my four stages of behavioral change throw them up in the air throw them up in the air and wherever they land that's the order they go in 
that's life that's what life does it's it's not linear it's not it's not predictable it's unpredictable it's chaotic it's it's troubling it's worrying it's concerning it's all these different things all at once all the time and what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a way so what's important is knowing what you want knowing why you want it you know that's important that's really really important you know and knowing who you are if you look at any model of change it always talks about knowing who you are you it's not about changing the habits it's about changing who you are you know if i'm a smoker and i tell some and someone offers me a cigarette and i say oh um sorry i'm trying to give up <laughs> i'm going to get offered it again and again and again until i give in but if i look at them and i say i don't smoke they will never offer it to me again i've changed who i am that's who i am now i'm not a smoker anymore there's no point you talking to me about it offering it to me because i don't do it anymore and this is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to change habits in their life. We're not trying to eat a little bit less food or an exercise. We're trying to change the person we are. We have to like the things we do. That's why if I give you a workout that you hate, it's not going to work. If I, if I give you a diet plan that doesn't fit in with your life, it's not going to work. Mm. You know, we have to find the things that work, you know. So, I mean, I don't work in the fitness industry anymore, but when it comes to change, that's why I, I don't claim to have the answers to other people's life. I don't. I don't have the answers. I'm not that arrogant. What I do is I listen. I listen. I listen. I listen. And I offer what I hear back. You know, the person has the solution. It's just that they're not hearing it and they're not brave enough to go there. Um, and if you look into that fear, quite often you'll see the solution on the other side. It'll probably be some big raging flaming inferno <laughs> that you've got to go through. <laughs> but, but it's there. <laughs> it's, it's there. there. Yeah. yeah. And you have to go through it. You have to. And you haven't got a choice. It's so interesting. You know, you can live your life that way, but it's going to be a miserable life. You're not going to have a, a nice life and it's not going to be rewarding and you're probably not going to be very successful. I know that a lot of the psychiatrists that I like to watch online in the podcast that I watch, they, they, they say exactly what you're saying here. You've got to walk with your head held high. You have to have self-confidence because if you don't, people will perceive you as weak they will perceive you as not well and it will it will not be bode for you well in, in this world if you do not have that confidence and it's really hard to get to that place and identifying those issues is is the key as you said and in alcoholics anonymous and i go back to this because this is how i got through recovery Amazing. i don't do aa anymore not not hardly ever i'll, I'll go occasionally to just sort of touch base and say hello and remind myself and reminisce about the times that I did have that in my life. And it keeps me a little bit accountable, but I already have that built in every morning. I wake up and I know that I have this disease that is going to continue to tell me that I have this disease and we call it that, but it's just this scratching in my brain that's always there in the morning. And it's like, you can drink, you'll be okay. And I have to silence that. I have to recognize it. And I think we're we're trying to get to the root of recognizing that what is that thing inside there that that little voice that tells us that gives us that enabling moment where it says i'll enable you you're okay you're 40 years old and you can do it that's what i thought back in the day i'm like i'm almost 40 i can take that drink there's this sort of this mechanism that we have that says it's going to be okay you can do these bad things and i think that is kind of what we have to take a look at right is how, what is that yeah and i think you know if you want to use my, myself as an example my first thought around alcohol came when i was bored 
right? So I was at home and I was experiencing boredom. Yeah, which to me meant I started thinking a little bit. Started thinking about how I got out. I started feeling guilty. I felt like I'd abandoned my family, left them to it. I was the biggest, strongest in the house by my father and I've just left them all there, right? I later speak to my brother and he tells me, oh no, you gave us somewhere else to go. And I was like, wow, never never thought of it like that, you know? Hope. I was, yeah, it was really helpful because I had spent my whole life feeling bad, feeling like I'd abandoned them and I hadn't. Um, but, you know, it comes down to there's a need. There's a need, there's a need, there's a need. What do we need? What do we need? What do I need? What is that alcohol giving me? What is that addiction giving me that that I needed so early on? Again, this is where we go back to that early years where needs were neglected. And then later on in life, we find um, that we serve that need through alcohol or addiction. And it comes down to like people want to articulate it. People want to put it in a nice little statement or something that's really well articulated that can be understood by everybody. But it's not that kind of thing. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. And sometimes there are just feelings that we just can't articulate. They're just, they're too conflicting. You know, I read this thing once, right? It's called the Three Bowls Experiments. You ever heard of that? No, I haven't. No. So they, they, they had three bowls, right? And they had the middle bowl, which was room temperature water. And they had one bowl that was hot water, really hot water, and one bowl that was freezing cold water. And they encouraged the people to put their hands in the middle bowl. So they put their hands in the room temperature water and person agrees room temperature water right gets it now take one hand out put it in the hot water one hand out put it in the cold water and you leave him in there as long as you can the hot water is so hot that it feels like it's burning your skin the hot cold water is so cold that it feels like your bones are about to shatter so you keep him in there as long as you can and you take both hands out and you put them in the middle bowl one of those hands in that room temperature water will tell you that it's freezing cold the other one will tell you it's boiling hot but it's not, it's room temperature. The reason that you're experiencing that is because of the environments that you've been in before. And I look at that for people in conflict. We want to make sense of things, but sometimes they don't. It doesn't make sense that one hand is telling you it's boiling hot and the other one's telling you freezing cold when the water is room temperature. And that's what we can experience. That right there is the feeling of addiction. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I can't articulate it, but yet I'm feeling it you know and we get so bogged down as humans with trying to understand things and articulate things and put things into words that everyone can understand when what we're doing is we're in a way creatively procrastinating and getting away from the fact that it's a feeling what is the feeling what is it how is it making me feel well it's a, it's boredom right so it's boredom which shows up for me as this anxiety this fear this this really uncomfortable feeling that i don't like so what do i do as i reach for a drink and now all of a sudden i have a purpose i'm going to drink this alcohol and i'm going to keep drinking it because i don't want to feel like that <laughs> you know that's yeah. that's how it goes wow you know? that is that is um that's profound because we create these emotions and these emotions are super heightened right so even mm. though it's lukewarm it's fine there's nothing that's burning us or freezing us as addicts we feel this lukewarm water as one or the other mm. and it's interesting to think that the, that in terms of science and the neural pathways in our brain the first thing we want to run to if you thought of it as a hallway at the end of the hall and you always go to that one hall the end of the hallway you always go to alcohol alcohol is there 
you're going to run to that. But we never think about the other doorways we could open up to create positive reinforcements. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we really lose is that we're going to have, we're, we're addicts, you know, fall, fall short and relapse is because they don't have the discipline to snap themselves or to say to themselves, you know, stop halfway down that hallway. There's a door on the right, right here that says, I had a lot of anxiety today. I need to go to the gym. Oh, mm. before you get to that alcohol, stop. There's a doorway on the left here that says, I'm feeling a lot of emotions about something. Maybe I should talk to my spouse. Maybe I should talk to a therapist. And I think we, we miss on that. And, and I, it's amazing to see the, 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 the rewards of disciplining yourself to do that. And, and I, I feel for people that, you know, can't get there because I've seen the other side of sobriety and what it can do for a person. And, you know, before we jump off today, and, and by the way, I think we should do another round just to continue to try to, you know, get to the bottom of some of these things if you're open to it. Um, oh, always. Uh, I've loved today. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I, I want to just touch on what recovery has done for you, just so we can spread some hope to some people out there, you know, two guys who are sitting here who probably wouldn't be here today. And once they start drinking, both have the same reaction, which is where is more alcohol? And it never stops until I'm blacking out. How do we give them some hope? How do we say to them, this is what it looks like now. It's it, there is a light at the end of that tunnel, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you see it right now, it is there. What do you have to say to those people out there? Being sober has given me freedom. It's the foundation of everything that I am now. It's the foundation. It's not everything, but it's the foundation of everything. And the reason I say that is because when I, when I went public with the fact that I had had challenges around alcohol, I had a problematic relationship with alcohol, so many people said to me, but you, you barely drink because what they, what they saw was when we went out to dinner, out for drinks to a sports event or live show, or whatever we did, um, I'd be really reserved and then I'd get home and then open the wine and get going and, you know, start drinking because I preferred to drink alone, unfortunately. Mm. And what they didn't realize is that it's not just about the amount of alcohol you drink. I didn't drink Monday through to Thursday and I, you know, that was a kind of rule that I had. So I'd binge drink over the weekends. Right. But what they didn't realize is that I was always thinking about it. And that's the bit that they didn't realize Monday. I was thinking, Oh, a couple of days now I can have a drink sad, but true. You know, I was always thinking about it. whenever we'd wake up on a Saturday and my wife would say to me, Hey, should we go to the beach today? I'd be looking for the beach. I had a pub near, you know, or I'd be thinking, can I get some beers from the off license? Everything, every thought I was having was unknowingly surrounded by alcohol all of the time. So that is draining. That is a filter that I had put my entire life through all the time with alcohol. What am I doing tomorrow? How much can I drink? Can I move that thing? Can I start that thing at 12 o'clock instead of half past nine? Blah, blah, blah. All these different things that I would do because I was trying to accommodate alcohol all of the time. So by ending that relationship, I created freedom. That's what I created. I created freedom from always having to feel like I had to think about it all of the time. It was like the ultimate toxic relationship where I was being gaslighted and 
and uh, all these different things going on all the time. Like alcohol was telling me it was good for me when it wasn't, you know? And what I had to do is I had to stand up and be brave because I spent the first 25 years of my life thinking I was a scared, weak person only to find out that I was brave because you cannot be brave without first being scared. So all of these big decisions that we make in our life come with fear. If that fear is not there, it's probably not a big decision. You know, so when I had to give up alcohol, I was terrified of what am I going to do at my first wedding? What am I going to do on holiday? What am I going to do at Christmas? All of these moments. And even my wife, I had to be really appreciative that my wife married a drinker and now she's not got a drinker. And that that's going to be, there's going to be a feeling of grieving that comes with that for us both. And I had to appreciate that because it's not fair for me to go, no, you just have to accept this new person. I have to allow for that. I have to realize that it is different. We used to go to the beach with a bottle of wine and sit there and have a lovely evening. But then I'd go home and drink more and more wine and she'd go to bed, you know, and that's the difference, (laughs) you know. So I have to accommodate her version of my drinking was lovely because she would go to bed way before that, you know. But my, my journey was different. So what does it give you? What's the hope that people have got is that you take it one day at a time and you realize, which I know is an AA thing, you know, you do, you have to get up in the morning, you can have the worst day in history, you can offend everyone you meet, you can mess up all the stuff you plan to do. But as long as you did not drink alcohol, you did win that day. You know, and you have to also realize that there will be days where the temptation to drink, you might not succeed, and that you drink alcohol. When a child learns to walk, it it doesn't just get up and nail it, it gets up and falls down, it gets up and falls down, it gets up and falls down. And each time it's doing two things, it's learning what it did wrong last time, and it's strengthening the muscles. So the opportunity there is you drunk. Okay, let's not let's not be horrible to ourselves. Let's figure out what happened. What led you to drinking? Because again, that's screwing up the nettle leaf and rubbing it on the wound. It's saying, right, right in this incident where I drank alcohol is the answers to some of the difficult questions. Am I going to mask them or am I going to pretend that it was just a one-off and move on? You know, and this is it. We, we, all the time in life, we're being presented with opportunities to grow. And because they're a little bit painful and a little bit stingy, we avoid it. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's not what we need to do. We need to look and go, right, okay. You know, like look at a kid. You can tell a kid all day long, don't touch that flame. Don't touch that flame. Don't touch that flame. Touches the flame, never touches it again. <laughs> Doesn't even want to. No, it knows what hot means now. <laughs> you know? And this is what it. So, so the answer to the question is it gives you freedom. It teaches you about yourself. It allows you to extract super valuable lessons that never, ever go away. You know, you yeah. can become the version of yourself that, you, that you've always wanted to be if you create that freedom. Because what happens is when you take away the alcohol, there's a massive void. And lots of people focus on the void. And that's where they end up falling off. Because what I'm saying is don't focus on the void. Focus on what you can put in that void. Because that's exciting what could I do? What could I become? What could I, you know, could I do a course and change my career? Could I become really good at a sport? Could I, can I have time now to meet that person I want to meet? Whatever it is in your life that you want, fill that void with that. Because that's going to be more meaningful. That is the need that you've been trying to fill. Figure out what that is and fill it. You know? I love it. It's exciting. (laughs) It is. It gets you fired up. I can tell it gets you fired up. What Uh, you're talking about here is, Small victories, man. Small victories every single day. Don't beat yourself up. Mm. Add up those small victories every single day. And as I did this in recovery, I added up the small victories every day. And if you continue to add those up over time, even climbing this mountain to get better, 
and you're always looking up there to see, oh, have I got to the top yet? No, I'm not quite there. Well, we don't really know exactly what the top is, but if you look back behind you, if you look back, hmm. you've gone a long way. And if you add those small victories up, you can end up winning the battle, but you got to be adding them up. And if you're not recognizing it, then you're not really in it, right? So that awareness, again, plays a huge role. Dude, you're you're brilliant. I can I can only imagine you, you've helped so many people. Um, I want people to know more about you. I want people to know where they can find you and where they can access, you know, your knowledge and your experience to help them uh, on your on your websites, on your on your social media. Can you drop us some some information now about how to find you, how to work with you as a coach? Yeah, I mean, I just want to piggyback off of what you just said. Uh, you know, I believe that a big life is made up of small moments, you know, um, I think sometimes people get intimidated by the whole big life thing, right? But actually, it's the small choices we make in the everyday moments that make the biggest difference. But yeah, if people want to find me, I'm I'm now known in more so um, as the self development coach. And the reason for that is for two reasons. One is because that dude from Cobra Kai killed my SEO, man. Absolutely savage. <laughs> when you type in Johnny Lawrence in Google, it's not me. <laughs> so, I've so, dealt with it, man. I've dealt with it. I had yeah. a guy, um, uh, acting coach, not an acting coach, a, a voice coach in New York with the name Matt Farnsworth. Mm. And I had all the SEO rolling and boy, did he ever eat it up anyway. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, it's a, it's nice. It's killer. It's killer. You know, mm. so, uh, yeah, the other, the other reason is because I have dedicated the rest of my life to helping as many people as I can with their self-development. I do that through my podcast. If you don't mind me mentioning it. Yeah, go ahead. No, uh, the self-development podcast. Um, and I talk to people that are either experts or specialists in certain areas, or they've been through something really 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 difficult and i've learned some valuable lessons and the idea of the podcast is i like to offer hope to people that feel like something is hopeless by showing that you can get through difficult things uh, and what that really looks like instead of the pressurizing way that some people think it should look like um so that's one of the ways i offer value in the world another way is that i do master classes and um it won't be long now till i'll be launching my, uh, the first on-demand master class which is about anger um, I've learned a considerable amount about anger, as I'm sure you have over your life. Um, um, but what I like to believe in in my industry is that um, I am educated. I'm educated in many, many things, um, uh, mainly in behavioral science and stuff, but um, also had a lot of experiences, a lot of real life experiences around violence, uh, domestic violence, addiction, all of the things that some people might consider as weaknesses. And my belief is that when when education meets experience, it creates wisdom. And all I'm ever doing is is offering things. I'm not telling you that I have an answer to something or that, you know, you need to tell me, oh, that's wrong or right. I'm not trying to be wrong or right. I'm just offering information and hopefully some of it will be helpful. So the masterclasses are a very low cost way of people finding out information so that they can become aware of their problems and they can start taking accountability, start accepting things and start taking action in their life. Uh, and that will be coming out uh, probably in October, I would say. I've got to go to Nepal before then, which I didn't even touch on. <laughs> um, and then, you know, if you want to find me on social, it's the Self-Development Coach. And then the website is the theselfdevelopmentcoach.co.uk. 